fais-toi couper les cheveux Je lui ai dit ma mère dans 20 ans si tu veux Je ne les garde pas pour me faire remarquer Ni parce que je trouve ça beau Mais parce que ça me plaît Oh yeah L'autre jour j'écoute la radio en me réveillant C'était Yvette Tornier qui jouait de l'accordéon ton accordéon me fatigue, Yvette, si tu jouais plutôt de la clarinette. Oh yeah Mon meilleur ami, si vous le connaissiez, vous ne pourriez plus vous en séparer. L'autre jour, il n'était pas très malin, il a pris un laxatif au lieu de prendre le train. Oh yeah Oh yeah Avec mon petit cousin qui a 10 ans On regardait Grenonours à la télévision Nounours il a dit bonne nuit mon bonhomme Il est parti danser le Jerko Palladium Oh yeah Le juge a dit à Jules vous avez tué Oui j'ai tué ma femme pourtant je l'aimais Le juge a dit à Jules vous aurez 20 ans Jules a dit quand on aime on a toujours 20 ans Oh yeah. Tout devrait changer tout le temps Le monde serait bien plus amusant On verrait des avions dans les couloirs du métro Et Johnny Hallyday en cage à Melrano Oh yeah Des chemises à fleurs, c'est que je suis en avance de deux ou trois longs cœurs. Ce n'est qu'une question de saison, les vôtres n'ont encore que des boutons. Oh yeah! J'ai reçu une lettre de la présidence me demandant Antoine, vous avez du bon sens. Comment faire pour enrichir le pays? Mettez la pilule en vente dans les monoprix. Now, that is a celebrated rant in the history of French pop music called Les Élucubrations d'Antoine, or the, you might say, the, um, the distilled reflections of Antoine, who was a very odd and extremely successful and truly delightful early hippie in France who tried to... He was so excited by Bob Dylan's music that he decided to put it in um, a French format. He pioneered the flowered shirt in French hippie life. He was, in a way, the first high-profile hippie singer. 
there, and uh, it's a series of hilarious, uh, very unguarded, um, anti-establishment, classic mid-60s opinions from a young man, and it became very famous. And the backup group was called Ses Problèmes, Antoine and His Problems. Anyway, I thought I'd um, give you that little piece of arcane French pop music, which I find, if you listen to it again and again, I hope you will, I think you'll find it kind of hypnotic. It, it, it kind of just loops and loops and loops, and it's delightful. And you can look up the text uh, on uh, the Internet, and it's basically a series of uh, thoughts about his friends, about his family, about his mother, about jobs, about politics, and finally about the pill. And um, I thought to myself, well, now, what would be the equivalent of Les Élucubrations d'Antoine for PZ's podcast? Because what I would like to do is actually today take a sort of odd or, for me, important tack in really, you might say, lighting a candle rather than cursing the darkness. What uh, is so plain as we go forward to presidential elections and a lot of national debates currently and with the tremendous uh, energy and primarily, uh, at least as I see it, tremendously angry energy of the internet, I thought it might be nice to give you a kind of list of some positive resources rather than um, repeating all the usual giving les élucubrations de PZ in the form of a rant, which Antoine, in a kind of fresh and delightful and very young way, was doing, I thought I'd try to give you a little kind of a list of some resources that have meant a lot to me recently in terms of trying to kindle some positive, um, helping, even loving and reconciling uh, feelings and um, reachings out, engagements with... Uh, the reality of living and the reality of human um, experience as I perceive it and see it. So this is the Élucubration de PZ, and hopefully you might make some notes, you might find it interesting, you might be inclined to follow through on some of the recommendations I'm going to make. And it's really kind of a reading list of uh, various things positively that are meaning a great deal to me these days, and you can take it for what it's worth, and then we'll end with a kind of fun, uh, short little bit of pop um, glucose from an earlier era as well that I find just dear and uh, happy. Now, what um, has spoken to me enormously of late is the work of Christopher Isherwood. Now, right off the bat, there is an enormous um, um, interest and uh, absolutely uh, keen focus in his autobiographical writings, and most of what he wrote, not all, but most is, by his own confession, autobiographical. While there is a great deal of the spirit, you might say, of the human being and of religion, there's also a focus on homosexuality and Christopher Isherwood's own homosexuality. And if that uh, is a bar for you to read his books, um, it really doesn't have to be, because it's all brought together in a most extraordinary way, which I couldn't even evaluate, except I could simply say that in two of his works, um, his, his honesty and his absolute transparency and his insistence on being utterly honest as a voice is really a very wonderful and a real, if I may say, kind of martyrium or witness to what it is to be a, an authentic uh, um, 
shedder of light in the modern era. And I want to recommend, uh, really, of the two books that I personally uh, have enjoyed so much recently, My Guru and His Disciple, which I think was the last major work of Isherwood before he died, and A Meeting by the River. I think I would offer to you, the living, his late novel, A Meeting by the River, which is really a fictionalized version of much of what he talks about in uh, directly journalistic uh, autobiographical ways in My Guru and His Disciple. And it uh, posits a meeting of two brothers who are alienated and who are both in a way the mirror image of the other. One is a soon-to-be-ordained Hindu monk, although these are both um, very well-educated Englishmen. And one is a uh, man who's wrestling with a terrible problem in his marriage. And he's um, really ashamed about a very important secret that to him is the make-or-break fact of his life. And these two brothers meet on the Ganges. And instead, it's a little bit, reminds me a little bit of Deep River by... uh, uh, the man who wrote uh, those wonderful uh, Christian novels from Japan. But um, A Meeting by the River is so positive and so reconciling and so deep and so powerfully true to the anthropological truth of life um, and ultimately so religious in a graceful sense that I cannot recommend it highly enough. I wouldn't want to call A Meeting by the River a Christian book because it's really out of a different religion, uh, but it is dealing with the universals of good religion and hopeful religion and integrating religion in such a way that you um, leave it uplifted. So I recommend A Meeting by the River by Christopher Isherwood. It's not a long read, and it's fictional, so it uh, it reads well. It's a compelling read, and it's also an epistolary novel, like Dracula by Bram Stoker, but an epistolary novel that actually and completely comes together. It's a bit of a detective story, too, for the reader. Now, continuing on these uh, élucubrations de PZ, I have a special little area now on my golden shelf, as I think I've mentioned in a podcast entitled The Two Geralds, that is devoted to the work of Gerald Hurd, which is fairly hard to find. And um, it's all available if you look on ABE and uh, go on used book sites. And one of his uh, works, which I think was called the... I have it. What am I saying? I think I've got it right here. The Great Fog and Other Weird Tales has recently been republished, so it's in print. And Hurd... Um, People who were in the sort of New Age era when he was really a pioneering New Age philosopher uh, were a little bit suspicious of him because they really thought he was really deep down a Christian. He was, as I think I told you, the son of an evangelical Church of England rector who was trying, that is Gerald Hurd or H.F. Hurd, as his fiction is often under. So if you look under H.F. Hurd, you'll find his books. H.F. Hurd, Henry Fitzgerald or Gerald Hurd, was criticized, you might say, from the left by being too Christian, and he was criticized from the right for being sort of too Quaker and a little New Agey, and he was. He was really an original thinker. And if you start with his stories, especially Despair Deferred and um, another uh, very long and very 
deep story called Dromenon, Dromenon in The Great Fog. You'll get where he was going. He was really trying to find an overall view of human life that combined the depth of the understanding that we have to die in order to live and a really deep appreciation of mercy and absolution and what Christians call the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And his books are absolutely fabulous. I think I would start with uh, his stories, not all of them, maybe a couple of them are very odd. Um, he was also a mystery writer. I think I would start with um, possibly Dromanon uh, and also Despair Deferred in The Great Fog and Other Weird Tales. But I would also read um, A Taste for Honey, which understands the human predicament deeply and understands original sin, as we would say. And he, or just human nature, evenly distributed. And after you do all that, go to Doppelgangers, which is a major read. I mean, that'll, that'll take you a while because it's so theoretical. It's a science fiction story, a novel, Doppelgangers, but the last uh, 20 pages of Doppelgangers are very profound. To me, they bring together just about everything I now uh, regard as important insight in life, both on the gray side and on the um, sense that the person or ego has to die. You all recognize this from writings and thinking that I've done on the podcast recently, but I cannot recommend Gerald Hurd enough. Start with his short stories and then work to his science fiction and don't miss uh, A Taste for Honey, which was made into a movie with Susanna Lee later on, um, both bad and good movie directed by Freddie Francis in the English Gothic tradition, um, which is called The Deadly Bees and is available for like nothing now at Barnes & Noble. But start with the book, which is called A Taste for Honey. Now, uh, a couple of other things. I've been entranced by John Galsworthy. Now, this is so interesting. Gerald Hurd was really working against his inherited Christianity, which had been so merciless and so legal and so rationalistic that he knew it wasn't really enough. It wasn't the whole story, but he couldn't let go the insight on mercy and grace. Similarly, Isherwood was in tremendous reaction against Christianity, primarily because of his homosexuality. And yet, at the same time, he was a spiritual person. He was what a, a really credible religious man who wanted to bring together religion and God with what his real life was. And that's why his books are really so impressive, especially A Meeting by the River. But there are others. And then there's John Galsworthy. Now, John Galsworthy had grown up in the upper middle class, not titled, but the high upper middle class of English society in the 19th century. And he, having gone to Harrow, was, needless to say, in strong reaction against the Church of England and Christianity, which really came down to a sexual question vis-a-vis -vis his marriage to a divorced person, which inoculated him against um, Christian orthodoxy in the Church of England and in England. And almost all his books tilt, joust very definitely at Christianity and explicitly. Did you know that the original title for the two first two novels of the Foresight Saga, the original titles were not the titles that we know of them now, Man of Property and so forth. They were actually Christian Ethics 1 and Christian Ethics 2. He was so outraged at what he regarded as the judgmentalism of Christianity in relationship to the remarriage of divorced persons, i.e. sex, that Galsworthy uh, decided to name his first two and most famous novels Christian Ethics 1 and Christian Ethics 2, which he thought had resulted in the complete and total and atrocious um, humiliation and uh, domination, and finally subjugation with violent force of his great character, Irene uh, Forsythe, nay, 
Hennis, I think it is. And uh, this is really um, amazing. And he didn't quiet down, but because he was uh, couldn't quite get away from it, he deals with religion and Christianity at length <clears throat> in almost all his novels. And I've been uh, focused recently because he's really talking about grace and law in everything, and he has enormous insight into human nature. He believed that human nature was the one great given that many writers refused to look at. He felt that if you didn't understand that human nature never changes, this is Galsworthy's own words, if you didn't understand that human nature never changes, you will never really understand what reality is about. And his books are outstanding observations of human nature. Now, the two books that absorbed my attention, and they came as a result of watching, I think I told you, the... Nineteen um, uh, sixty-eight, but it's all available now at Barnes and Noble. The Kenneth Moore and Eric Porter and Nairi Don Porter BBC version of the Foresight Saga, which goes further than the novels do. That is to say, it takes up the the second uh, trilogy of novels uh, which he wrote, not um, which which the Foresight Saga itself had ended with, and then he wrote a modern comedy which in, consists of three novels: The White Monkey. Um, oh, I have it right here. Um, Silver Spoon, and finally the Swan Song. Swan Song, and I've been focused on Swan Song because it is so deeply personal about Galsworthy's own faith as a rather and somewhat redeemed character of Soames. Foresight faces his own mortality, and um, Swan Song is a very powerful study of a man who tries to become a believer at the end of his life. As it turns out, he actually goes to Salisbury or actually Winchester Cathedral, and tries to find God, and he doesn't because the church blows it, but he almost does, and in some ways he finds the truth of life, and he finds the truth about God, which comes to him in a slanting way, and it's very uplifting. So read Swan Song, which is easily available, actually in a kind of, uh, you have to get it in sort of a, an edition from the 70s, uh, but you can get it. Scribner's, I think, and it's easy to get uh, over the internet. And also I've been reading, because it is his most friendly, after he finished Swan Song, he wrote three more novels before he died, and then he was awarded the Nobel Prize, wouldn't you know, and died before he could accept it. And he wrote a novel, a trilogy called Made in Waiting, M-A-I-D, Flowering Wilderness and Over the River, Over the River being his last novel. Well, I've been absolutely possessed of late by Flowering Wilderness. I had heard that it was his most um, positive novel about a, a clergyman, because clergymen, not evil, but stupid, uh, uninsightful, and finally, in some cases, cruel, but unconsciously cruel clergyman figure in a great deal of his work. <clears throat> but in Flowering Wilderness, he has a really wonderful clergyman named Hilary Cheryl, spelled Charwell, but pronounced Cheryl, an upper-class titled <clears throat> man who's gone into the church. And Hillary, while he is what we would today call a theological liberal, is a man of impeccable uh, mercy and profound desire to help his uh, fellow man who are less well-off. And Hillary comes from a very uh, well-educated, titled family. And he's not in reaction to it, but he sees his life in the church as a life of service. And Hillary Cheryl's uh, a picture of him and his wife, his wonderful wife, who comes from the same background and is equally committed to a kind of version of Christianity as the religion for the underdog that, while it lacks orthodoxy, uh, is deeply Christian, and it's explicitly so. And uh, Flowering Wilderness all ha also has a character named Dinny Cheryl, the niece of this man, the Reverend Hilary Cheryl, who's one of the most admirable women in all of Galsworthy. He has many admirable women. 
Um, people say he doesn't, but he does. And, uh, he, he has some very confused women, but he also has an extremely admirable woman in the character of Dinny. She is to be compared with Fleur Forsythe, who's far more confused. Hillary, uh, D- D- Dinny reminds me of my own wife. She is um, very warm, uh, very deep, full of integrity, tr- fully honest, and lacking in neurosis, and yet totally human. She's completely, she, she bleeds just like everybody else. And Dinny, um, Cheryl is one of the great women in modern English literature. And so, uh, I've been reading Over the River in which, uh, Flowering Wilderness, in which Dinny has to face a sort of post 9-11 situation, which is fascinating about when her true love, also a titled Englishman or an Englishman from the upper class, um, becomes a Muslim. This is, in, this is in the 20s. It's extraordinary. Or is it the early 30s? Extra- early 30s, he becomes a Muslim. And it is uh, for a variety of interesting reasons. And it, it, in Darfur. And uh, Denny, who's in love with this man, must deal with the implications, both spiritually, sociologically, personally, and class-wise, and finally, integrity-wise, in her love for this English-titled man, who is a white man, who has become a Muslim for a very interesting and controversial reasons. And so um, Flowering Wilderness, which is a reference to the nickname this man gives to his love, Dinny Cheryl, is a wonderful and relevant book. Read it now in light of Benghazi and in light of Egypt and in light of all that is going on in the run-up to the election. And then finish Over the River, which was made into a movie by James Whale. I mean, one of before he did Bride of Frankenstein with Colin Clive and a number of other wonderful actors. He did Over the River, which was a a Universal Pictures, I think Universal did it, but James Whale directed it of, uh, I think it was actually called Across the River, One More River actually, the movie version is One More River you can't get it on DVD uh, although it's sometimes shown on the Turner Classic Movie Station, and he did a novel called Over the River, which has a happy ending like all his novels generally do, there's always tragedy, but there's ultimately integration and there's always a moment when the, the sort of the Spinoza, William Hale White, Carlyle moment, when the hero or heroine looks at the stars and really sees God, a little bit like the ending, a little bit less religious ending of um, Cousins' um, Guard of Honor. And over, uh, and it's, uh, uh, by the way, Galsworthy meant an enormous amount to James Gould Cousins. Over the River, although people pan it, is actually very good. And then Galsworthy died. It was published posthumously. So read Swan Song, see the BBC 1967 um, 26 hour or segment version of this, which is brilliant. See, read Flowering Wilderness, which is the high point religiously of Galsworthy's conceptions about these things, and read Over the River, which is very touching and in a way is a religious statement. Finally, two more things. I've been very much aware of how good The Fall of the House of Usher is, the 1960 uh, opening salvo in Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe uh, movies um, for American International. Um, The first one I actually saw as a kid was the second, I think it was sort of the second, which is The Pit and the Pendulum, which I just adored and made me a lover of horror movies forever, in addition to Shock Theater. Uh, You all have your own stories about this, but um, then very quickly afterwards, I doubled back and saw The Fall of the House of Usher. Now, The Fall of the House of Usher is an actually brilliant little movie. It's Roger Corman with uh, very unknown Hollywood actors who aren't really very good. They're sort of flat, except for Vincent Price, who began his uh, sort of second great 
time or third great time in his career with the portrayal of Roderick Usher, and he is fabulous. But this is a story about, uh, it's an analogy of the human condition because the family of Usher have decided to have no children because they have a genetic disease which results in catalepsy and all sorts of other blood diseases and neurotic diseases. It's about inherited diseases based on karma. It's, it's a truly karmatic picture of what ultimately happens when all the different ills that your descendants have d- brought to your DNA and your environment are finally uh, snuffed out in a childlessness and a desire to be childless. And this is um, reflected in the great story. The story by Edgar Allan Poe is where this is from. This is not Roger Corman, although he understood it. It's in Edgar Allan Poe. It's reflected in a house perched upon a cliff overlooking the Atlantic Ocean north of Boston. And this, I think that's the setting, and this house of the Usher family has great fissures in it, and it's constantly quaking and, um, what's the word, uh, tearing at night, and these fissures and uh, great splits in the foundations and in the walls of the house of Usher are constantly bringing down the ceiling, and uh, plaster is constantly falling down on the on the characters, and dust, and gradually it's a symbol of their their life. It's a it's a it's an embodiment of the human condition. And Roderick Usher is so awake, he is so alive, we would say he is so mindful. Now, have you ever thought that Vincent Price in Roger Corman's version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the Usher would be a study in wakefulness? Now, listen, listen to this. He is a study in what the world today calls wakefulness because he hears so much what is going on that he can't stand sound. He's so aware, he he sees so deeply that he can barely see it. He's become an albino because he's so sensitive to light. He he is he's an albino. He sees and he hears um, too much, and he is the most sensitive artist you've ever seen in your life. He is utterly wakeful and mindful, and as a result, he sees what is really going on. He's like the man with the X-ray eyes, which is a later Corman fantastic little movie, but we won't talk about that today. See the fall of the House of Usher, if only for the use of the color red in the first sort of third of the movie, if only for the use of the color red and the whole question of death and life and in the midst of life we are in death. And uh, what did um, did, um, Meister Eckhart say? The, uh, The only true religion happens to you when you are fully and completely dead. I think that's a direct quote from somebody. Gerald Hurd quotes it. I don't have the... Eckhart, although I'm looking at Eckhart over there in a book. Um, but I do have the herd. Um, I think it was an essay um, on the contribution of uh, German mysticism to um, the treasure house of human understanding, in which he says, didn't he say, um, Eckhart said that the ultimate truth of religion is that you can only practice no religion when you are completely and utterly dead. I, I, it's better, as Heard quotes it from Eckhart. But The Fall of a House of Usher, the movie, is a beautiful cinematic portrayal of that theme. Now, um, that's uh, really what I uh, wanted to um, talk about today. The uh, pictures, the books, and the positive um, expressions of death in life and life in death, which is real because now we can live. I mean, behold, we live. We, what does he say? Um, St. Paul, 
we are this, we are that, we are, we are despairing, we are all these things, we understand, we are Roderick Usher. This is about Roderick Usher in Les Élocubrations de Pizet. This is the Roderick Usher character, and dying, and yet, unlike Roderick Usher, because he, he cannot really let his, his hold on life finally slip away from him, it does have to be taken away through fire and sword and earthquake and Isaac. And Roderick Usher is the mindful man who would that I could tell him, Roderick, Vincent, in dying, yet behold, we live. This is the great truth of life, and uh, it makes me feel good, to be honest. And I'm going to conclude now with just a little tiny evocation of, uh, of uh, that message, because after all, it's all right. 